0: please pray with me. Uh, Lord, here we are gathered, gathered by you, gathered with one another and gathered with you and gathered before you, Lord, um, to to hear from you, to not only hear from you, but Lord, to um, look to you for our life. Lord, I pray that this morning we would deepen in our dependence upon you. And with that deepening of dependence, Lord, we would deepen in our delight in you. So, Lord, put this word to work. We thank you for the promises you have attached to this word, which have never failed and have always yielded abundant fruit, abounding not only in your people, but indeed in all the world. Lord, would you cause that to be true once again this morning as we hear it, and as we are not only hearers of it but doers of it, uh, Lord, would we um, gladly receive into our hearts once again the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Lord, would it overabound to the blessing of our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I guess it was about 15 years or so I attended a, a building dedication in Roxbury, Massachusetts, kind of a neighborhood of, of Boston uh, that was uh, in honor of a man named Reverend Michael Haynes. Uh, Reverend Haynes was the pastor of the historic 12th Baptist Church in the Dudley Square neighborhood of Roxbury. And, and he was a huge figure, uh, not only in Boston, but in the civil rights movement. He was one of uh, Reverend Martin Luther King's close friends and allies. Uh, He went on to serve for a time in the Massachusetts State House as a state representative. He served on university boards and governor's councils. Uh, And by the time he took the platform, he had been praised, you know, up and down by speaker after speaker for all his accomplishments and all his influence in gospel ministry and in civic life and in the civil rights movement in this country and, in fact, around the world. But... It was during his remarks that he said something that really stuck with me and has stuck with me ever since. He stood up on this platform outside this building in Dudley Square, Roxbury, Mass. And he kind of pointed this way and he pointed that way and he said, everything the Lord has given me to do, everything he has entrusted to me and accomplished through me, had to do with simply seeking to faithfully minister. One block that way, one block that way, one block that way, and one block that way. So that having been entrusted with just those few blocks, having sought to faithfully minister with what the Lord had given him, the Lord had caused it to abound uh, throughout the whole world. And that kind of came back to me just this morning as I was thinking about preaching today on this particular part of Colossians, a passage that, you know, is full of praise, begins with, you know, praise so soaring and so expansive that in one breath, uh, Paul is praising God for the hope laid up in heaven, and then in the next, he's praising God for gospel fruit being born and increasing all over the world and in Colossae. But he says in the very same breath that it all ensues from, it starts in this really seemingly simple place, the the fact that families and men and women and children have trusted Jesus, have put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. That virtually all of Paul's praise to God from the heights of heaven right down to the dirt under the Colossians' feet you know, ensues from this singular fact that they put their faith in Jesus. And and the enormity of what has happened in their placing faith in Jesus is expressed, I think, in this single word in his greeting to them. Uh, It's a word that's easily missed, uh, but is, I think, massive in its implications. Uh, Paul could have, of course, written this letter and greeted them in all kinds of ways. He could have said, Dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, Dear fellow Jesus followers, hello new converts to the faith. Or you could have just called them Colossians, but what he actually calls them, each and every one of them, every person in the church, is he says, dear saints. Now, you might hear that word saint, and what you think of is something like an advanced Christian. Um, You know, like while most of us spend our entire lives trying to kind of earn our Christian GED, you know, there's this select group, this select few, this heroic small group of spiritual elites sprinkled among us, called saints. You know, these are the PhD Christians. You know, while all of us are privates, these are the generals. And you know, they're the ones who get the statues and the altars and the feast days and the amulets. And, you know, some of them even get to hear our prayers when we find ourselves in a a jam, right? And yet, there's this astounding fact that not only here in this letter to the Colossians, but all over the place, Paul calls everybody in the church a saint. And, you know, what are we supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with that, especially as you get into these letters and start to see the problems that, are, you know, alive and well among these people, and the sin that they are struggling with, and you realize, in fact, that these are folks who are furthest, the furthest thing from what you might conventionally label a saint. Well, it turns out that Paul has a different definition of what a saint is than we might have. Uh, it turns out that his understanding is that one doesn't become a saint by a triumphant faith, but by simple trust in Jesus, through grace, that it all starts there. And and again, this is true of all Christians, from the most to the least mature, from the strongest to the weakest, from the most solid to those who are deeply struggling. If your faith is in Jesus, however strong or weak that faith may be, according to Scripture, you're a saint. You are set apart and holy unto the Lord. Not because of what you have accomplished for him, but because of what he has accomplished for you and applied to your heart in salvation. So Paul spends a lot of time praising God for that singular event, that singular earth-shattering redemptive fact that God has, by his grace, given his people faith and saved them and set them apart as holy unto the Lord. And he praises God for the fruit that comes from that faith. Love for fellow Christians, that is no small thing, by the way. Hope, an ability to hear and understand and live out the gospel of grace, the sharing of lives so that the good news of the gospel comes to others. And with faith comes something else that you can kind of feel, I think, as you go forward in this letter. It's, it's It's not explicitly expressed, but I think it's there, especially as we get into this part of the letter, It comes with something else, and and I've been struggling with what to label it, but I'm going to call it tension. There's a tension. You might first get a whiff of it when Paul pivots in verse 9 from praising God for these people to praying for them with no small amount of intensity. Telling them that, in fact, Paul says, I haven't stopped praying for you since the moment I first heard of your faith in Jesus. And it kind of makes you wonder, in light of all that Paul has said, I just told you that whole thing about what it means to be a saint and secure in Christ and all that he's accomplished for us, it makes you wonder in light of all that Paul has said about the greatness of what what God has done for them in Jesus Christ, securing for them a hope laid up in heaven, why the need? Why the need for such intense, ongoing, intercessory prayer on their behalf? Well, it seems to me that Paul is contending with the fact that even as they're new in Christ, they're still in Colossae. They've got a whole new life, but they're living in the same old neighborhood. Everything has changed in coming to faith in Jesus Christ truly, and yet, let's be honest, there's a whole lot about life that hasn't changed at all. Got the same job, I've got the same boss. I'm stuck with the same relatives. I'm dealing with the same body. I've got the same neighbors. I've got the same stubborn habits. I've got the same trying circumstances. New in Christ, still in Colossae. New in Christ, still in Santa Fe. New in Christ, still dealing with COVID, right? I mean, we're saints, we have our struggles. That's the tension. So Paul turns to making sense of what it means to live as one who is saved and secure in Christ, even as we struggle with whatever our colossi might happen to be, with whatever it is we're living in that stubbornly seems to go unchanging or maybe even getting worse. You may have noticed that the text this morning begins with this connecting phrase. It's and so... um, Another way you could translate that is for this reason. Paul is connecting this part of the letter to what's come before. So what's he connecting to? Well, he's just been praising God, again, from the heights to the depths for their faith in Jesus. So as he pivots to verse 9, he's inviting us to consider with him the implications of what it means to live as a people of praise, as a people of praise praising God for what he has done. What would it look like to actually live as those who, verse three, 3 to 5, always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's given us faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for us in heaven, all because of what we heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. What does it mean to live in light of that? And the first thing he considers and asks for is that those who love and adore Jesus would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Um, Now, look, every church has its challenges, and Colossae certainly had no shortage of them. As we get deeper into this letter, we're going to see that one of their huge challenges was the allure of false teachers and their false teachings, Uh, false teachers who were full of promises for what makes for the good life. If If only the church would get on board with their particular prescription, of what makes for the good life. And I would submit that even as the particular prescriptions in, of the false teachers in Colossi might be different than what we may be presented with, you know that perhaps the greatest and most persistent challenge of living in this tension of being Christ and in the same old neighborhood is the idea that, yes, you've got Jesus, but now let's add some stuff. You've, you've done step one, now let's move on to step two, right? You need, you, yes, you have Jesus, but you need more. That's kind of at the heart of, I think, what's present and at work all the time for Christians. Now, Lord, have mercy, and I wince to bring it up, but I've been through more than my share of election cycles as a pastor, okay um, and it never fails that as those things heat up as they always do and i'm sure you know you find this as well i find myself on the receiving end of articles and videos and initiatives and petitions and everything else from teachers and preachers full of advice and life strategies on how to secure the spiritually secure the spiritually successful and abundant life if only me and the rest of the church will get on board with the program. And in 21st century America, those promises tend to be packaged in, you know, a particular cause to back or a candidate to support. And in Colossae, those promises were packaged in a particular spirituality, a rigorous one, eating certain foods, staying away from other kinds of foods, sticking with the letter of the law. All of it boils down to this pattern that persists to our day. Yes, you've got Jesus, but you need a little more than just faith in him. A little more, something else. So it's really striking to see how Paul doesn't pray for a little more. He doesn't pray, you know, that we might be a little bit better informed, a little bit more well-instructed or guided or to get on board with something in addition to our faith in Christ, he prays instead that we would be filled with more of him, filled with the knowledge of his will, a knowledge that isn't found you know, in here, excavated out of the self or out there you know, to be explored by adding something to the faith that we already have, but filled with him, with the knowledge of his will. And now, asking to be filled with the knowledge of God isn't merely to seek to grow in your understanding of the theological data or to grow in disciplines, although although those have their place. It involves, I think, both asking of God and admitting something about myself at the same time. It is to be at one and the same time humbled by the reality that I lack the very things I am asking for while knowing that God possesses them in abundance and is glad to fill me with them. It is to say that I am bereft of what is bountiful in the Lord. And there's another dimension, I think, to the, in this prayer to be filled, and, and that is to ask that no part of me and my life would go untouched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I suspect this is why Paul doesn't merely pray for wisdom and understanding, but for all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Having knowledge not just about spiritual things, but in all things, all wisdom for all manner of life. He's saying that the gospel touches everything. We don't have a a spiritual life and then the rest of life. We live spiritually, informed by the Spirit, filled with the knowledge of His will. Of course, I'm a Presbyterian. John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion is a very important book to me. It is, by all accounts, uh, the first work of systematic theology. It's one of the greatest theological works ever produced. And yet, you know, it's a a doorstop, okay? Uh, it's, It's not the easiest reading. Yet, for all the theological terrain it covers, all of it flows from this very simple idea that Calvin states in the very first sentence, the very first chapter of that Volume, he says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, true and sound wisdom, consists in just two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to him. I I, I love that idea. This idea is very much, I think, in the spirit of what Paul is praying here, that we would grow in a knowledge of self and a knowledge of God so that in all of life, the gospel would lead us by the hand, that we would never let go like a little kid. And, you know, that, that may sound simple enough, but I kind of want to say saddle up, okay? Because that way of living, living led by the hand of the gospel to say all I need is Jesus uh, will mess with many of our conventional spiritual categories, but I think in a good way. Paul describes what that kind of life looks like in praying that the Christian who is filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding would, would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And I looked at that and I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, he's prayed to be filled with the wisdom and knowledge of God. And in the same breath, he asked that the knowledge and wisdom of God would increase. Um, and it kind of makes me, the, the way my brain works is this question came up, which is, well, if you've already been filled with the knowledge of God, how can you be, increase in it if I've already been filled? I think what Paul is saying is is simply this, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is always more. There's always more. A a professor of mine used to say, the greater the island of knowledge, the longer the shoreline of ignorance. It's that old principle, right? It's like the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Uh, And the more you long to know. And you know, in this sense here, the more you're filled, the more you want to be filled more. Paul's saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ possesses within itself unplumbable depths. It is inexhaustible. And because that's true, you never move past it. You never move on from it. You never get over it. It is just exploring it more and more and more all your days and beyond. And, and I think this is a really important thing for many of us who've been Christians for a long time because. There's a very common narrative, again, that the gospel is, the thing, is a thing to accept. It is a thing by which we are initiated into the Christian life. And then having done that, we get on with the dutiful work of the Christian life. I was reminded of the group of people who came to Jesus in John 6 and, and asked him, Lord, what, may, what must we be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus says, well, here's what you do. You believe in the one whom he sent. That's the work. You believe. You believe. You trust. You let the gospel lead you by the hand. So Paul is saying that the way into the Christian life is also the way of the Christian life so that the gospel itself fuels holiness. The gospel itself is that which works to deepen our understanding and enjoyment of the gospel. I was once in an off. I was reminded of being in my friend's office once. This was years and years ago. He happens to be a pastor as well. And, of course, since it was my first time in his office, like all pastors, the thing I was most interested in was his books. We judge each other by our books. And so I was sniffing around, and while I was poking around, I noticed on his desk this little handmade sign that he had framed, and it just had two words on it. It said, Pursue Meg. Uh, Now, Meg was and is his wife, and at the time I saw that sign, they'd been settled into married and family life for a good long while. Uh, by all indications, their marriage was and remains a very happy one, one in which what anyone would count the blessings of marriage were, had been secured uh, and were thriving a home and children and career and financial stability. And yet, you know, he made this little sign to do the thing a lot of people would say you do in order to get married, but not necessarily the thing you do once you are married, which is pursue, pursue her. You see, he had her in marriage, but he wasn't done pursuing. He understood that the wedding day was just the beginning of the marriage, not its culmination, not its totality, not its high point. He understood that there was far more to the relationship than the simple act of getting married, more than the present state of blessing, he understood that there is always more to pursue, always greater depths to know and to love and to support and to care for her more deeply all the time. I think that speaks to the kind of relationship with Jesus Paul is praying for on behalf of the church, is urging upon the church that, that even as Christians may have fully secured a relationship with Jesus, they continue to pursue Jesus. Not out of fear, not out of insecurity that the relationship is somehow shaky or in jeopardy, but because there's always more. There's always more to be learned and to explore. There's deeper depths to plumb. There's more profound implications to consider. More to be lived out. Lived out of that which is already secure. Paul describes this pursuit with a, a favorite image of him, his the image of walking. Um, now, I have no shortage of bad habits in my life, but one of the few good ones that I have is i 've always been a walker. I, I just most days I get out for a good long walk, three or four miles and um, and, and I've come to find that there are basically two things two truths about walking um, on the one hand. It's, it's repetitious. I read an article this week about, you know, how to make your walks less boring. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's repetition. There's one foot in front of the other. It doesn't get much more complicated than that. Um, I, I, I think that fits with the kind of gospel-centered living Paul is describing, that, you know, it's, there's a one foot in front of the other quality to the Christian life. It's not all that complicated. Uh, there is... You know, the regularity of being in worship with God's people, of reading His Word, of just doing the basic things, uh, not, not out of a sense of earning God's grace, but out of, out of a gratitude, out of a, out of a re- regularity of just wanting to be with Him, one foot in front of the other. That, and, and, and I think even more profoundly, more deeply, there's this daily two-step of facing, again, the reality of ourselves, our need, our hunger, our sin, which would lead us to repentance. And also facing the greatness and the goodness of the Lord, knowing His love, His truth, His holiness, His grace, and believing. That's kind of the step-by-step, repetitious, one foot in front of the other, day in, day out, life of a believer, right? And from that repetition of putting one foot in front of the other comes the second thing that's true of walking. It's repetitious. You also, it is also that which enables you to progress, you go forward, actually. There actually is progress in the Christian life, a progress that results in what Paul calls here becoming worthy of the Lord. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a tough phrase. Um, when I hear of becoming, of a process in which I'm being made worthy, I, I think of having to prove myself worthy or somehow by my own efforts become more acceptable to the Lord than I already am. But, but that's not really what... Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about attaining sinlessness. I think what he's talking about here is something more akin to stickiness, sticking with the gospel, growing in faith in the one who was sinless and took, on my, sin on him, took my sin on himself, walking in repentance and faith day by day by day. P.T. Forsyth describes growth in a great way, I think, when he says, our holiness is not a matter of imitation. It's a matter of worship. Any sinlessness of ours is the adoration of his. The holiest have ever been so because they dare not feel they were. The perfect in the New Testament are certainly not sinless. And God, though he wills us to be perfect, has not appointed sinlessness as his object with us in this world. His object is communion with us through faith doesn't that kind of reorder your understanding of what it means to become worthy, of, of communing with the Lord in faith as growing and in, in seeing the surpassing worthiness of Jesus in our lives so that we have communion with him by faith, day by day, walking, walking in faith, growing, becoming worthy of the Lord is progress, but, but of a completely different order. It is to grow, I think, in, in, in wonder of God's grace, to grow in dependence on him for everything, delighting in him and depending on him more, depending on him more and delighting in him more. Now, Paul's made reference to gospel growth and what that looks like back in verse 6. He said that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world. And here he says that the very thing that the gospel is producing throughout the whole world is doing the same thing in us. It's it's bearing fruit. He he borrows language here from the creation story in Genesis 1. um, And he applies that creation story to every Christian's story as a kind of a common Christian story. He He wants people to think of their Christian story as something like a little creation story. Like, just as we know the story that God created all things out of nothing by the word of his power... he he wants us to see ourselves in the same way, as a little creation story, a new creation in Christ brought to life out of nothing by the word of his power. And not only that, he carries it even further to say that we ought to delight in knowing that just as he has brought us out of nothing by the word of his power, he has filled the void spaces of creation and he makes them flourish with fruitfulness. That the same God is at work in you, he says, to bear fruit and grow in a way that's fully pleasing to him, pleasing in the same way that he was deeply pleased with his work of creation, delighting in it, declaring it good and good and good and very good. Now, we all know that we're reading from Colossians chapter 1, and I think the reason all this stuff is sort of front-loaded uh, in at the beginning of this letter is just because it's of first importance. Uh, Paul will not bury the lead. Uh, the centrality of the gospel, the gospel as not just the way into life, but as the way of life is so vital because life is simply too much for all of us. It just is. It's too much. I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, like a lot of you, I was popping champagne corks for 2020 and then COVID hit. And then I was all excited and ready to hit the reset and pop champagne corks for 2021 and our capital gets hit. It's too much. It always was and it always is. And yet, when we own the fact that it's all too much for us, that actually becomes the good soil that the gospel grows in. It's why Paul prays that Christians would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Here's the thing. A strong person can't pray that prayer. Mighty people can't pray that prayer. Glorious people can't pray that prayer. Only weak and inadequate, the worried and the wounded, the sick and the sore can pray that kind of prayer that we would be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Only those who know of their own worthiness, only those of us who know we aren't real good at being holy, only those of us who find ourselves falling short and failing and disappointing and messing up and overcome with grief can pray like that. And I think it's with an understanding of the fact that life is too much of us and the depths of our frailty that that Paul goes on to pray for endurance and patience. <laughs> because to be in Christ and at the same time in Colossi or in Christ and in crisis is to be in that place where you've glimpsed the glory and tasted of the fullness of life while at the same time being frustrated that you're not there. Not yet. You're living in the already not yet. You're saved and being sanctified far better than you once were, but far from all you'd hope to be. And we need patience and endurance. One writer said, patience is what the gospel brings to an an apparently impossible situation. Endurance is what the gospel brings to an apparently impossible person. And here's the truth. We're impossible people in an impossible situation. So to pray for patience is to trust that the Lord will bring about his good purpose in his own good time and in his own way and that that is best. And to pray for endurance is to pray that we would be given divine help in getting through immense difficulty because God has good things in store for us if not in this life then certainly in the life to come. But living this way isn't merely a grind, it actually does go somewhere. has a destination in mind, something that can actually be secured in this life. And that thing, Paul says, is joy. Never getting over the gospel, walking in the gospel, produces the fruit of knowing that I have all I need in Christ, and that has the effect of producing joy. A mentor of mine once told me uh, that the key metric in evaluating the health of a church is not to be discovered in its finances, as grateful as we may be for them, or in its physical plant, as grateful as we may be for that, or in its leaderships or programs or preaching or production. He says that the singular quality you ought to look for in church health is joy. Joy. can't remember who said it, but someone made the point that the difference between happiness and joy is that while happiness is sort of always dependent on your circumstances, joy is always secure because you've got the Savior. And the source of joy, Paul reminds us, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of Paul's letters are, are little gospel treatises. All of them are studded with little gospel summaries. Um, and there's a great one here. It was in our confession this morning. It's in verses 13 and 14. Uh, this is the cause of our joy, that the Lord has, and here's the gospel summary, delivered us from the domain of, dark, domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If someone ever asked you what the gospel is, you could just read them those verses, and you will have defined it very well. The gospel means to have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And notice what Paul calls the gospel. Paul calls the gospel here an inheritance, which we all share in. Just think about that for a second. It's not a salary, not a wage, it's not a paycheck, not a bonus, not a benefit. The gospel is an inheritance. An inheritance is something, an inheritance is not something anyone ever earned or accrued. It is wealth that you come into by the will of another, legally yours, never to be taken away. And there's no... Better picture, I think, of that great inheritance than what we participate in week in and week out at this table. That that when we come as as believers in Christ, having put our faith in Him, thankful for having been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son and light, we're not coming to an altar where we leave our offering in the hopes that God will bless us in return. We're coming to a table set for us to partake in grace which he is glad to give that again we would be filled more and more and more fueled to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord knowing that he is at work and making us fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work increasing in our knowledge of God being strengthened enduring with patience growing in gratitude to our father who has qualified us to share in this great inheritance of grace so this isn't a table for the full. It's, for, it's a table for the hungry. It's a table for the weak who need strengthening, who know that life is too much, who knows that, that we are bereft, but what we are bereft of is bountiful in the Lord. It's not the pastor's table. It's not the elder's table or the, or the saint's table. It's the Lord's table. So if you're in faith, I want to ask you to Come. Not looking to yourselves, but to him, trusting him to fill you with good things that we might be pleasing to him with gratitude, knowing the joy, even as we long to know it more deeply. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, I thank you that you, um, you really know who we are. You know our hearts better than ourselves. How many of us have groaned deeply, even in the few days of this new year, not even being able to sort out the heaviness and the grief and the difficulty. How many of us have felt that very real tension of knowing the great thing that you have done in bringing us to Christ, but also contending with all the realities of living in the same old neighborhood? Lord, would you cause us as we come to this table to come Maybe newly awakened to the greatness of the gift you've given. Maybe newly aware and grateful that we have been made citizens of the kingdom of God, which um, advances, uh, which the gates of hell will not, over, will not withstand. Lord, uh, that we are sons and daughters of the living God, that Jesus, you even went so far to take the audacious step to assure us that we are brothers and sisters and that we have a father, uh, an affectionate father who uh, doesn't demand of us but delivers to us grace because all the demands have been met in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for such a great redemption. Maybe we could linger this week over just the magnitude of having been taken out of darkness and brought into your kingdom. Um, Lord, help us to walk in that Lead us by the hand with the gospel this week. Help us to not be lured by the temptation that we need more than Jesus, but instead, uh, Lord, lead us to plumb the depths, to look at his glory, to, Lord, to reach out. Some of us are stronger than others at any given moment. Help us to preach the gospel to others, to remind them, um, to bear one another's burdens, to, to, uh, to say to one another, don't forget. Don't forget what God has done for us. He's given us an inheritance. There's nothing to earn. There's only receiving. Help us to receive full of faith as we come, even if that faith is as a mustard seed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.